Hey everyone, welcome to another week of Antidotes. This is your host, Christine. Thank you guys for tuning in again. Thank you for everyone that has been following us on social media. Thank you for reaching out and leaving those reviews. It really means a lot to me. And when you guys are leaving reviews and you're reaching out on social media, sometimes uh, some of you actually send me messages and you want to talk. And I am a chatty person. I love talking to people. And one of those people that has been listening to the podcast actually reached out and was like, hey, I have a really cool perspective about what I do in the medical field. I would love to come on the show and talk to you like I have been saying on the podcast and asking you guys to do. So I'm really happy to have a listener, not someone that I kind of found through my wide reach of friends group. Uh, Abby, welcome on the show and thank you for reaching out to me. Hi, you know, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So Abby, you are a psych nurse. How long have you been a psych nurse? I am. I've been a psych nurse for, I want to say over a year now. Initially, I did outpatient peds. My goal was to get into inpatient peds, but for some reason, I ended up in inpatient psych. And I've been doing inpatient psych for almost a year now. So, so far, I've been enjoying it. It's definitely a challenging uh, role as a nurse, but I think it's definitely my calling. So what made you go from peds to psych? Was it job availability or just something that you found that kind of spoke to you? Um, it was kind of, it was kind of both. I wanted, I've always been interested in peds psych. Like that's my end goal. Yeah. My first stint in peds psych was working in like a pediatric daycare facility. So you know how there's the adult daycares? Yep. They have it for kids with special needs, like a lot of uh, J-tubes, a lot of uh, kids who are developmentally delayed, um, making sure they have their AFOs on, stuff like that. Playing J-tubes and AFOs for for our non-medical, non-peds people. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, it's like you're testing me. Oh dear. Uh, the J-tubes <laughs> are basically like the feeding tubes. That's, it's basically a uh, there's a port and there's like this tube that pretty much allows us to give like formula from the outside yeah. into the patient's <laughs> intestines. Yeah. Right to their jejunum. <laughs> yes. Hard to say. The AFOs, they're kind of like orthotics that help maintain the alignment of like the pediatric patient's feet. Oh, okay. Due to like chromosomal uh, defects or whatsoever, um, they're, they have like impairments in their feet which affects their gait so it's kind of like these um it's like a brace and an orthotic kind of put together okay. to help with the alignment so you've been a nurse for two years three years how long have you been a nurse i've gosh i got my license in 2016 so it's been a little over two years now and was nursing your first career or did you do something else yeah like nursing was my first career i i initially did it to use it as like a pre-med for medical school. Mm -hmm. My mom recommended me to do that. And then I realized I didn't want to be in school any longer. So I just stuck with nursing in a sense. Do you like the nursing role compared to what you thought the MD role would be? Oh, totally. I love that I get to interact with the patients. If anything, I felt like my favorite um, semester of nursing school was the psych rotation. It's not so much doing a lot of like the nursing skills, like how to do a catheter, how to put like EKGs. It was just like really getting to know the patient at a personal level and pretty much at their lowest and how to communicate with them when they're at that position. Yeah. And I think the coolest thing about nursing is that you can find something that's so individualized to what your desires are. I 
agree with you. I don't, I don't like doing catheters. Not that I think many nurses do, but <laughs> I think like I, I, I'm not a fan necessarily of the bedside nursing. It was not something that was great for me, mm-hmm. but I love my role. I absolutely adore it. And I don't know that I would be a great psych nurse either, but there's and anything you love in medicine, you can kind of find in nursing. For sure. And I think for psych, psych nursing or just psychiatry in general, there's kind of this running joke among the staff. Like you have to have a little bit of crazy in you to <laughs> do the work that we do. No, I'm serious. Like yeah. a lot of the staff members I work with, um, they like legit have a, um, a mental health disorder. So and like I really, I really appreciate that they're willing to be open about it and they're able to provide support in, in spite of their disability. I think, I think that's awesome that they are so open about it, like you said. And, you know, when you have had a condition that is similar to what your patients are going through, you are a more empathetic provider for sure. Totally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so what kind of uh, psych are you doing? I'm I, so I'm an inpatient psych and, and I still want to get into adolescent psych, but it doesn't seem like that's the plan right now. Since working at my current job, I've been doing a mix between like adult psych and geriatric psych. Mm, that's tough. Yeah. So I've been getting a lot of like the young adult to pretty much the grandmas and grandpas. So it varies. Like I get a lot of people with like their first psychotic breaks or mm. um, we've had a couple of elderly patients who are starting with dementia. Yeah. A good amount of the elderly, like female population, I swear, I don't know what it is, but they've been diagnosed with like these fixed, it's like a, it's called a fixed delusion disorder. Mm -hmm. So like they, they look totally normal as you converse with them more. um, You just see that there's something, there's something like going on. Like they're just very fixated on this certain perception, this certain delusion and like whatever you tell them. It's not going to fly with them. That's just like one of the few things I've noticed. Huh. That's really interesting. I don't know what it is. I do a lot of geriatrics, so I'm trying to think of like cases that are similar to that now that you mentioned it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> interesting. So uh, so obviously those are two very different populations, like mm-hmm. young adults and geriatrics, and there's very specific mental health issues that come along with them. And you, you kind of mentioned too early, you know, the beginning of dementia and then first psychotic breaks. For anyone that doesn't know, bipolar and schizophrenia often present early 20s. Mm-hmm. What is it like working with people that are kind of coming to terms with, I may have a mental disorder? Mm, that's a good question. Because most of the patients I see, they're just like, they're sh- either they're just starting or they're so like deep into their illness that they have no insight. Yeah. It's, it's really hard. It's so hard to answer that question. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. And I think that lends... I think that's an answer in itself that, you know, how can you put an answer on something that's so complex? Mm -hmm. So what do you enjoy most about being a psych nurse? Hmm. Like on, on the good days, (laughs) like just being able, well, I'm like, there's like the good days and the bad days, I I guess. Yeah. To categorize it on the good days, like just being able to talk to the patient, if they're getting like really heated or you're starting to see a situation escalate, just find like helping them figure out what their coping skills are, redirecting them, helping them utilize their medication as needed if they're starting to feel anxious. And then on the bad days, what I guess helps 
is so there's different kinds of restraints. There's the physical and the chemical restraint. Yep. Um, we don't do chemical restraints because um, the whole point of it is basically um, to sedate the patient so that they sleep, they pass out. Yeah, that's how it's um, worded in the sense at my facility. We do, yeah, we do get some action where, like, if a patient's too agitated and they're either trying to assault staff, break break furniture, or hurt another peer, we do have to go hands on, unfortunately, and um, escort the patient either to what we call the seclusion room or to their room. And sometimes, like, just even being in an environment with decreased stimuli isn't enough. So then we have to either offer oral medication. Mm-hmm. And then if they refuse the oral medication, we have to do an injection. So on the bad days, I get some action that way. So that's exciting. Yeah, <laughs> exciting. Uh, walk walk us through the average day of a psych nurse. Good God, it varies. <laughs> and I think that's probably why most people like like that job. <laughs> yeah, like every day it's a surprise. Like we have, so we have patients who are there involuntary. It's a three-day hold in California. We call it a 5150. And after that three-day hold, the 72-hour hold, if the doctor sees that the patient isn't fit for discharge, then it gets extended to a 14-day hold. We call it a 5250 here. Um, So seeing patients on their 5150s, like you can get a sense if they're going to be here for a while or not. Mm -hmm. And I, I make it a point when I do my admissions to kind of like prep the patient for the worst, like, hey, like in case the doctor sees you and he feels like you're not fit for discharge, there is the possibility you're going to stay here for 14 days. Yeah. And then, yeah, just like seeing those patients versus like the 14 day hold patients. It's kind of nice having like the familiar faces, but at the same time, it's kind of heartbreaking knowing that they're still here. Yeah. So there's that piece. Do you get a lot of recurrent patients? Oh gosh, yes. We do have uh, frequent flyers, which I'm sure you know. Yep. At my unit, we actually do have uh, a frequent flyer. It was legit heartbreaking. I, I have two frequent flyers. It was like like really heartbreaking knowing that they came back. It's like, to me, it's like a failed discharge. Like what did what did we do wrong? How come right. they ended up back here? Stuff like that. How often are they coming back? What is usually the time frame? Oh God. Uh, it really varies. Um, sure. I've had frequent flyers come in like maybe like one or two months after they were discharged with the frequent flyers I'm thinking of right now it's been like a week since mm-hmm. they got discharged and now they're back and are they doing the three-day holds or the 14-day or are they voluntary or with them they they started off on the three-day hold mm-hmm. and then obviously we need more time to help them get more stabilized and have a proper discharge plan. So we're most likely going to put them on a 14 day hold. What kind of resources do you guys have as far as, you know, working with the community to get people, you know, well-established in outpatient care? We do have our social workers for that. And seriously, I respect them so much for being able to coordinate like everything from whatever's going on into hospital and how they're going to, like manage their psychiatric disorder once they're out of here. They do so much. Like I have so much respect for our social workers. Oh yeah, social workers are they're amazing. They do not get paid enough. Seriously. They really don't. No. You are obviously doing medication management. Are you leading groups? Do you do kind of that part of it as well as a psych nurse? 
when I like honestly when I do have the opportunity um I do lead groups a lot of it is like med like um educating them on medication or coping skills mm -hmm. like what they can do and just strategizing like a safety plan like if you're starting to feel suicidal what can you do like who can you reach out to and stuff like that yeah a good amount of what we do is like patient education just making sure they take their meds when to seek help it's just hard because it's like we do so much and then the other piece is patient compliance which I'm sure you know yeah yeah well it's hard to be compliant when you're not taking your meds because you're not thinking you know logically or having the insight to understand that you need the meds but then if you know once you get the meds then you're going I feel better and then maybe I don't need the meds and then the logic slips away again sometimes and or there's side effects what is one of the biggest teaching points that you drive home with your patients or th things that they don't know that you found that you need to tell people I mean for a lot of the patients like most of them just have so little insight and I I empathize where they're coming from, where it's just so debilitating that you feel like you can't really do anything for the rest of your life. A lot of it is just like, I feel bad when I say convincing, but it really is like just telling them, you know, you have to take your medication, you have to go to therapy, because the study shows like those two together will help you live a successful life. Yeah. And it's just so hard for them to make that first step. And then they're just stuck being institutionalized like no other as a result right. of not being able to break through. Is there anything that you have found with, you know, not every patient, but certain patients that have helped them glean insight into themselves? Anyone have like that light bulb moment? Yeah. Yeah. Any nurse tricks that you got that kind of <laughs> helps reach patients? <laughs> we all have nurse tricks. I know, right? I think for me, it's just, I'm really goofy and quirky. I, I, I'm somewhat clumsy but I swear to god I'm not clumsy when it comes to the injections and giving meds <laughs> but just like poking fun at myself or just I when I have the opportunity and when I feel like the patient like I can kind of break through and there's some appropriate relationship between me and the patient I disclose a little bit about myself because sure. It helps when they have like a role model in a sense, yeah. like, hey, you know, you're not the only person struggling. I empathize where you're coming from because I'm also in a similar position and this is what I do. Mm -hmm. And I hope you can do the same thing to live a healthy and normal life as much as possible. Yeah. Well, you've alluded to being in a similar position. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm like fairly open about it, yeah. um, <laughs> but it really just depends on the patient. Yeah. So... I think it's been like over a year or two now. I was diagnosed with type 2 bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. That uh, being said, I have the typical depression, but instead of full-blown mania with psychosis, I have what they call hypomania, Okay. where I feel, like to me, I feel the sudden burst of energy, and that energy could um, be interpreted as like being able to like get through work, like power through it, mm -hmm. or like the shopping, like very subtle shopping sprees. Yeah. I've had incidents where my energy can turn into like really bad irritability mm. yeah. or there is the hypersexuality component. Yep. And I know it's like my, my mania like has like four different forms and a lot of it is like subtle that other people don't notice unless you really know me at a personal level. And 
what did it feel like to get diagnosed? Did you like have that kind of hopelessness that you see in your patients? Um, you know, for a while I, I knew something was wrong with me. A lot of it had to do with just my upbringing and how I was functioning like throughout nursing school. And so when I got the diagnosis, there was a sense of relief. And at the same time, I did feel a little bit of shame because it's Mm -hmm. like, there's such a huge stigma about mental health. Yeah, there really is. I've like, in all honesty, like, even though like I'm a nurse and I'm a mental health advocate and I've been fairly open about my diagnosis, I've had a couple of people kind of push me away as a result. Like I'm like, it. I guess people find it hard to get along with me or it's just like, oh, I'm a freak that they don't want to be with me. So there's a little trauma in that, knowing that um, some people can't handle my diagnosis, but I mean, it, it is what it is. People come and go and I have to learn to accept that, that not everyone is going to be okay with the, having a friend that's also a psych patient. So I'm learning, I'm growing. Well, clearly you've channeled it into something that's very constructive and no I one's, <laughs> I mean, no one's perfect. And we certainly all have our, our emotional flaws. Some of us are just, mm-hmm. some of us just have more insight into them than others. <laughs> to use your own terms. And I think the people that are judgmental are, I, I think they're not recognizing their own personal struggles. And it's unfortunate that they're not, uh, they're also uneducated. And so I think you're doing the hard thing, but the best thing by talking about it with people. Yeah, no, for sure. I think in the beginning, like definitely like going back to when I was first diagnosed, my family, um, for example, they had a hard time like understanding what my disorder is. Mm-hmm. And it, it was, it was a lot of, it was a lot of butting heads, but then I realized I need to learn how to communicate it properly so that they can understand. Mm-hmm. So like just recently, my dad, um, so I, I come from an Asian background, for example, for starters, and mental health in the Asian community is very non-existent. You don't acknowledge it. Mm-hmm. If you, if you can't handle X, Y, and Z, your week. That's kind of an example of what um, Asian mental health is like. Oh gosh. Yeah. It's, it's a rough life. <laughs> so, so with my dad, with my dad, he, he definitely didn't know how to come to grips with my diagnosis, but just recently I've been educating him. I found a lot of really good podcasts for him to listen to. I tried giving him books. He's not a book reader. That's okay. So he does listen to a lot of stuff on the radio. So I thought the podcast would help. I believe like just a little shout out. Yeah. I think it was Psych Central. Okay. The Psych Central um, podcast. There were a few really good ones that um, I was able to extrapolate and send to my dad. And I asked him like, you know, dad, what did you think about it? And it, oh my gosh, <laughs> it was really comforting knowing that he, um, he learned something out of those podcasts. Yeah. And he was just really open and honest. And he's, at, he's like asking me like, you know, what can I do to support you? How can I make sure you're okay? Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> I know. Like, cause before the language my dad used was like, you know, you need to suck it up. Yep. We all like, everyone goes through this. So you need to learn how to handle it. But in my head, you know, it's not that simple. Like yeah. 
I have a genetic disorder that makes it difficult for me to handle my emotions. It's like that, that commercial. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. (laughs) Exactly. Gosh. But yeah, like just the podcast, my dad's changing his language, his thoughts on mental health and like everyone else I've been close with my boyfriend, my sister, they're also learning. And that's another piece. Just having a really good support system really helps with your mental health. Oh, yeah. I mean, even when you're not dealing with a new diagnosis of bipolar, dealing with anything, having a great support system, it's it's invaluable. And fostering those relationships and and telling people that you are appreciative of it. I think we kind of forget to do that sometimes. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I talk a lot about dealing with trauma. You know, your your support network is is integral to that and kind of letting people know that even if you don't want to talk about your trauma, just letting them know that you appreciate them being there to do something else, mm-hmm. to get your mind off of it. So for anything you're going through, having a support network is is so important. You know, you mentioned this unique perspective of dealing with mental health in the Asian community. You know, have you reached out to other people that are Asian with mental health conditions? Have you tried to kind of help patients that are in a similar situation more so because of that experience? Oh, there's like several pieces to that question. I love it. <laughs> I do. So I mentioned like I want to get into adolescent psych yeah. because of like my history with trauma as an adolescent. I also want to like it's my dream to study about Asian mental health because there's really not that much literature about it. The most I see is in Japan. Okay. So just a side piece. It's my goal to study in Japan to learn Asian mental health there. Um, with that being said, there have been opportunities at my workplace where I have encountered um, Asian patients. And it's kind of like they kind of mention it in nursing school. It's like that cultural competency component. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like just finding those little ways to connect with the patient. It's a good way to start. And then from there, you just build on it and see like if they're ready to delve into their mental health. And it's really a 50-50 shot. Like I, there's this one patient that comes into mind, a very sweet elderly woman. And like on the surface, very normal. And then like I mentioned, she has this like fixed delusion. She would say that there's like someone that's, that's trying to break into her home. And she would like pour flour all over the floor to look for the the dude's footsteps, stuff like that. Mm. And this delusion, we found out about it when she got super irritated, agitated with the doctor. Mm. Because initially, we didn't believe that there was anything wrong with her. But then this came out. And then the family notified us like, yeah, she's been having this kind of behavior for years. Oh, wow. They showed me the videos. And I was just like, oh, my God, like, like, I can't, be- I can't, I just can't believe it. The hard part I'm sorry, I'm going off into tangents. No, no, go for it. The hard part with mental health, it's like you need to figure out what medication works for you. Yes. And like for me, like I can speak on my experience. I have found medications like pretty much on the first attempt, it's worked for me. So I've um, like I've been on Lamotrigine, which is a mood stabilizer that's also used for seizure disorder. Mm-hmm. I've been on um, Isotalopram, which is an antidepressant yeah. that also helps with anxiety. 
What else? I'm also on gabapentin, which is also for anxiety. It's an, it helps with anxiety, and it's also a mood stabilizer, which also works for seizure disorders. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, I do have propranolol. It's a cardiac med that also works for anxiety. I love that med for anxiety. I'm like, I'm a huge propranolol is great. Yeah, I'm a huge fan. It also works for um, tinnitus, ringing in the ears, and migraines. Mm-hmm. So many uses for that med. Old school one. Um, anything else? And then there's also the benzos, the clonopin. I use that sparingly since it is a controlled substance and it is hard for nurses to nurses with a disability that require a controlled substance to function. Mm, Yeah. I I've like struggled with that recently because yeah, since it's a controlled substance, it can impair your judgment. And so I've also recently found out that even, and I could be wrong, not even like a doctor's note could protect you from using a controlled substance that's to your benefit for nurses. I don't I don't know about the legality of that. I don't know. I know. It's, it's such a gray area. Yeah. So I don't know. I think it maybe depends on the class of medication, like if it's sedating or an opioid or something. That's an interesting point. Whenever I'm prescribing meds for mental health, you brought up a really good point that it may not work. The, the first med is not always going to be the right med. And I mm-hmm. have conversations with people about this all the time. You know, we're going to try something that I think will be good. Um, this is a, a class of medication that people react to a whole but like your SSRIs. People can react to Prozac completely differently than they'll react to Lexapro, than Paxil, than, than any of them. Mm-hmm. And not to mention all the other antidepressants that are out there in all the different classes. So we may have to tweak it and find the one that's right for you at the right dosing. So be patient with me and <laughs> stay with this. We're going to work on it. You know, keep coming back. You know, I... I will keep trying as long as you keep trying and you keep showing up. You have to really be honest with your your clinicians because we can't help if we don't know. For sure. Have there any been any particular cases or stories from work you want to talk about? Hmm. <laughs> I have <laughs> so many stories. Oh, yeah. I'm sure you got a litany of well, some of the lighthearted ones. Everybody always thinks they need lighthearted ones. You you can talk about whatever you want. Everyone's like, I know this is a oh, comedy yeah. podcast. I'm like... I don't think you've been. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Well, you can tell whatever you want to tell. I guess maybe in the beginning, let's do just like a trigger warning. Sure. Since a lot of the stuff uh, I'll be talking about in the next few minutes, they're um, they're pretty uh, violent in a sense. Yeah. And sure. there might be some some mention about suicidality, so I apologize in advance if it triggers anyone. You're a very uh, good psych nurse for doing that. I should probably do that <laughs> before every episode. All right. One case in particular, which kind of scares me to this day, I had this patient who um, was very fixated. Um, he really wanted his Nicorette gum, hmm. but he's currently on a Nicorette patch. So the patch has been on for at least 12 hours. And our nurse practitioner said, like, you know, he needs to have it on. We can change the order tomorrow because we don't want to all of a sudden randomly increase his dose as a result of like switching the form of the medication. Right. And so I told him this and he got really upset. He was cursing at me and he was kept on saying, give me my damn Nicorette gum. And I said, you know, I'm sorry. Like I had to set a firm boundary with him. And that's the real big piece of uh, psych setting boundaries. I had to tell him like, you know, I can't give it to you. The doctor said that we have to wait till tomorrow. I'm sorry. And then this guy was going off into tangent saying, well, what if I was having a seizure? And uh, what would you do then? 
because you're not doing anything for me right now. And I'm like, sir, that's a completely different scenario. It's a different story. Yeah. I'm simply talking about your neck right yeah, now. That happens all the time. This guy gets pissed. Yep. He got so pissed. He, uh, he punched the wall. He punched the water jug. And uh, he, broke, he broke our water jug, which dispenses water to all the patients. So, and he started posturing towards other staff. By posturing, we mean like he was getting ready, like in position to possibly fight someone, like mm-hmm. like get physically aggressive. So um, that was a hard part for me because it's like a lot of us had to go hands-on and pretty much restrain him to the bed so that we can give him his, um, his medication so that he can calm down. We offered oral medication like 30 minutes prior to this incident, I think, because of, um, cause he was getting heated, mm-hmm. but then like the oral medication didn't work by then. So we had to oh, he um, took it. step it up. Yeah. He, I, I want to say it was Seroquel. I can't remember, but, um, Which is an since he was so agitated. Yeah. It's one of the antipsychotics. Incidating. Yes. Um, but the oral medication didn't work so we had to do um, the injection I think we did and this is like the standard for psych when you give an injection it's typically a mixture of Haldol 5 milligrams uh, Benadryl uh, Benadryl 50 milligrams Ativan yeah Ativan 2 milligrams B52 we call it a yep we call it a B52 you know it yep so we gave it to him and then I put him on like a one-to-one to make sure like he wasn't having any side effects of the medication. Yeah, that, that was a rough, that was a rough day. I really hated that. Yeah. And yeah, it's like, I'll have certain days where just patients are so aggressive that if warranted, like it's, and it's not, it's not a nice thing to do. Like people think like, oh, this is like, we're getting action. We get to pin someone down. No, I don't. I don't like saying we pin someone down. We put a we put hands on. It was a physical restraint. Yeah. And it's like being in the patient's patient, patient's shoes, excuse me. It's almost like humiliating. It's degrading to be pinned down. Like it, that in itself can like trigger a lot of trauma for people who've gone through like physical sexual abuse. Yes, of course. So I, I'm, I'm very, I'm very careful about those. Right. And of course, when you talk about de-escalation, if someone put their hands on me, the first thing I'm going to do is fight back way harder than I was ever planning on fighting before. So, you know, trying to avoid that hands on and just de-escalate the situation is, you know, it's paramount, but you can't always do that because, you know, logic isn't always in play. Mm -hmm. I haven't really had like a fight or flight situation just yet knock on wood, I've had some patients like push me, um, grab me by the arm to the point where their new, excuse me, their, um, nails are digging into my skin. I had, yeah, I kind of had a bad bruise after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Th- that's like the most physical patients have been with me. I know that's, that's the hard part of my job, but like the, I do have the moments where it's like, I discharge a patient and there's, and I'm, I'm sure you, you, like every nurse gets this, where you have that patient that's really appreciative, appreciative of the care you provided. Yeah. And it's like those moments that really melt my heart. Yeah. I probably get those like once in a blue moon, to be honest, because no, like, let's be real. No one wants to be in a hospital, let alone a psych hospital. So yep. I do my best to treat my patients with respect and dignity. It's very, it's very hard to do it in that setting, but I do what I can. Yeah. But those thank yous when you get them, those are 
so great. That's the reason you do it, right? That keeps you going for another six months. <laughs> right. It's like, oh my God, thank you for, for acknowledging the work that I do because it re- most of the time it really does go unnoticed. Yeah, yeah, it does. <laughs> well, what about any uh, any of those good stories? You have a couple of them? <laughs> I know, right? I have that one patient who was also in the medical field. She was only there for like four, three or four days. And I think for her, she was having visual hallucinations Mm. so she was seeing things on like billboards that like other people couldn't see and they were legit freaking her out yeah that's scary I think it was like things like written in blood or something I think that's what she told me and then yeah she was at our facility for like a few days like she was very like pleasant cooperative she took care of herself by eating her meals showering attending to her, her ADLs as we like to call it activities of daily living hallucinations those that's terrifying i had a patient who was a regular and i think he was a schizophrenic and um he would have audiovisual hallucinations and again i'm i'm not making fun of him but he was because of the schizophrenia it was untreated and he was homeless and he would drink to try and treat it and he was like a really he was such a nice guy and we would see him all the time but his his hallucinations were like shrubs would just pop up in front of him like he would just like hallucinate bushes and stuff so he'd be walking along you're like okay like come on let's go into the ambulance like you know we knew him and he was never violent and but he'd be walking and he'd be like stepping over things and you're it looks comical and you're like trying to be very professional and like not laugh but like okay he's stepping over all these shrubs and then part of the hallucination too was that he forgot that he knew how to speak english oh shoot and he was hispanic and he forgot that he spoke any language other than german and so it was like this really strange thing and like (laughs) i took german like in high school so i was like i'm kind of like conversational a little bit nice and it was this weird moment where like i'm in this very urban hispanic area talking to this man who is hallucinating in german (laughs) in this very urban er they're like what is going on and i was like Ich weiß nicht. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, yeah, the, the hallucinations are, it's, I feel my heart breaks because it's just, how do you explain that, you know, to somebody? I mean, I, oh my God, I, I've had a, definitely a couple of patients like hallucinating and you kind of have to take it based on your assessment. Like I've had patients who I am talking to them, but they don't respond like, and I'm sure you've seen this too. Instead of like having the conversation with me, they're like, yeah, they're looking elsewhere. They're, they're saying things like irrelevant to the assessment. And yeah, you can see it. Mm -hmm. And it's like, how do you bring into that head? Right. How do you ground them? And then the visual hallucinations, it's, I mean, the way I notice it is like one, they, if they tell me that they have a visual hallucination or, Again, like you can see them like stare off into like a different part of the room and that's what they're focused on and that's what they converse with. So, yeah, when they have some insight, it helps. Watching their eyes was always a thing. Yes. You watch their eyes and if their eyes are not tracking with you and they're suddenly they suddenly dart off to other directions, you're noticing like I always say, oh, what's over there? Did I miss it? You know, (laughs) what do you what do you got? And then they would be like, oh, I'm talking to so and so or don't you see that or. Or there's there's that thing over there, and you go, oh, at least they tell you. Oh, I can't. Sorry, my eyesight's not great. What is that again? Can you explain <laughs> it a little bit better? And you know, and you never want to play in yeah. a delusion, yeah. but but you also want to kind of get a 
a better feel of is this a threat to them or is this thing mm-hmm. going to tell them make them a threat to me especially in an in ems situation or maybe there really is something over there <laughs> I, I do wear glasses i have terrible vision <laughs> i like how you're playful with i might actually like le- leech off of that because when i ask them if uh if they see a hallucination or I ask them like, Hey, what, like, is there something in the room or whatever? And they'll be like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Like they're super dismissive. So I need to learn to be a little bit more playful. I'm going to try that. I'm going to try that. Christine. <laughs> yeah. And it's, and it's not like a joking around thing, but it's always just like a, like curiosity. Uh, it's a curiosity. Yeah. It's a, it's a genuine interest in them mm-hmm. and it's asking questions in a way that is not, not intrusive, but still you're, you're asking questions to gather information without directly asking mm-hmm. them. And that sounds very sh- kind of shisty, but <laughs> like sometimes you, you learn a lot from what's not said. And when you're having kind of these shadow conversations a little bit, you pick up a lot of stuff and it's, I mean, I'm, I'm not a psych NP so, or I'm not a psychiatrist, so don't take therapy advice from me. But <laughs> you, when you're dealing with kind of these acute situations. Yeah. Cause if you're like, are you hallucinating? They're going to be like, no, go no. fuck yourself. Exactly. <laughs> or like some of them, so I've had some patients who have been like pretty um, honest with me and they'll be like, hey, I'm hearing the voices again and the voices are, uh, trigger warning, uh, the voices are telling me yeah. to hurt myself or hurt someone else. And then that's where we delve in like, you know, like what exactly are the voices saying? Is there a plan? Do you know how you're going to do it? Where you're going to get the stuff to do it? Stuff like that. Right. So when someone knows and they hear these voices and they they have already recognized that they are having them, then being completely honest and and not freaking out about it, but being very direct and saying, "Okay, what are the voices telling you? Mm-hmm. Is this is this a scary voice to you? Is this a threatening voice to you? What does that sound like to you?" Mm-hmm. And then of course, whenever anyone is talking about suicidal ideation, what is your plan? What methods do you have? And then assessing them for, you know, acuteness of that. It's hard. It's a hard feel. It, it is. Like, I'll, like I'll, I'll be honest. Like, I'll, since I am um, someone with a mental health disorder, I have struggled with uh, suicidality. And I'm very fortunate. I'm very fortunate to have um, a really good, like, interdisciplinary team that that helps me manage my medication, that helps me with my therapy. So for a while I was being, I was suicidal due to like the, a lot, a lot of the stress that I was dealing with. Yeah. I had these uh, vivid plans. I would like contract for safety, meaning I wouldn't go through with it um, because it's like, you know, I know like the stress is temporary, but I just like, I, nothing else is working. So I was thinking like, you know, committing suicide was the only option. But I'd never go through with it. I would always have someone I would talk to, like my therapist's number. I have it on speed dial on my phone or I reach out to my boyfriend for support. Mm-hmm. And I, for some reason, I never ended up in the ED. I guess like I, even though I had the access, I had the means, I had the ideation. I had people that were good enough to deescalate me to the point where I can go home safely. Yeah. And then I have the patients I see on my floor some of them are, it was at most like passive fleeting SI where it's like they felt hopeless. They felt like, you know, they'd better be off dead and they're admitted. Like there's this weird like discrepancy in our, in our healthcare system where it's like some people who are like really aren't that suicidal end up in like an inpatient psych 
And then I have the ones who like really need to be here. It's the hard part for me and going back to that. It's like, there's people who are like in the middle who are like, they are sick. And sometimes I struggle with the idea that's like, okay, I have my illness. I'm like in the middle, but then I'm also not like sick enough to be admitted, Mm -hmm. but I still need help. Right. And I've talked to other people who've like also felt that way. It's, it's such a spectrum that it's like, it's really hard to figure out like what type of help you need. Right. Yeah. You make a great point about having people that can deescalate you. Mm -hmm. I certainly have patients that have been actively suicidal that, you know, they've come into my office and, and we've, after a discussion, you know, they said, yes, I want to die. I would like to kill myself. But after the discussion, we're not going to go and have you committed because quite frankly, that's going to be the worst thing for you at the moment. You know, getting you to your therapist, getting you plans to kind of get back on to what you're doing and keeping you in your home and not incurring further costs of an inpatient admission and, and isolating you from your family, that would make you worse, but you're contracting for safety and things like that. And having people that you can have these discussions with and figure that out, it's hard though, because especially as a clinician, you don't want someone to go home and do something, God forbid, mm-hmm. one for liability, but more importantly, you would never want that life on your hands. Thankfully, in primary care, you get to know your patients very well, mm-hmm. and you you can learn sometimes when they're being truthful. But it is a spectrum, and the the model of care that we have doesn't fit every single person, mm-hmm. and that goes for any diagnosis, much less mental health. This this one patient I have, he like he has good healthcare access. Um, he had his counselor. He uh, he called the counselor, said that he was feeling hopeless because. He's grieving over the death of a loved one. And what I'm still trying to understand is that the counselor ended up calling 911. It was supposed to be a wellness check, but what ended up happening, there were multiple cop cars at the patient's house that they ended up like pinning him down to the floor and handcuffing him and sending him to the hospital. What Maybe I'm missing certain pieces of the story, but from what I understood, I understand that the counselor's call for 911 was warranted because the patient, he didn't have a plan. He was having um, fleeting SI, but uh, he had so many accesses to weapons that yeah. like anything could have happened. But I, yeah. I'm not sure why we needed a bunch of cop cars and to pin down the patient. So that's where I'm like kind of struggling with right now. Well, I mean, to play devil's advocate. Whenever there's a call with like, oh, the, the counselor may have said he has a lot of weapons in the home. When you go to a mental health patient that's suicidal and any of them they would dispatch police for just because I have been attacked a lot of times. Fair enough. Just myself. And then especially when whenever there was weapons, the police would go in first and EMS would stage for us. Mm-hmm. Because and when we talked about in our when, in my episode about uh, violence against health workers, that was someone that was suicidal mm-hmm. where I almost got stabbed with glass. And, and that was after the police had had searched him and I've been almost stabbed multiple other times and had guns pulled on me and the the average patient isn't going to do that yeah but unfortunately we have zero tolerance for that now the cops are not always the best at de-escalating situations <laughs> yeah uh having been there uh and it's not all cops there are there are absolutely wonderful wonderful police officers there's wonderful firefighters there's wonderful EMTs mm-hmm. but just like there's great people of any profession there's terrible people of any profession for sure and sometimes they are just like, just get in the ambulance. And you're like, no, we need to finesse this a little bit, guys. Just take five minutes. And maybe that's what happened. I, I will just say, you know, in kind of defensive first responders, they are going to err on the side of caution, especially when there's weapons in there. Fair enough. Okay. 
I mean, he was a nice guy, very linear, coherent, very good insight. But I was just like, dang, I felt bad that you got pinned down. Yeah, I mean, he was like, have you have you been inside the cop car? I'm like, uh, actually, yeah, I have. So you know what it's like. Yeah, and I apologize, sir. That's the best I could say. Yeah, I mean, and also like he's a nice guy now, but maybe when a bunch of cops showed up, he was really mad yeah. and rightfully mad, probably rightfully mad. But when you're right reading body language of someone that you're meeting very fleetingly. <laughs> and you know that there's weapons inside, you have to take it seriously for the safety of your officers and everyone around you, especially for EMS that doesn't have body armor on. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely kind of how we run our unit. Like if a patient's agitated and there warrants like a takedown or like medication. Yeah. Yeah. You just, you have to bear in mind the safety of the patient and the safety of others. It's a good point. Yeah. Because God forbid he reached for something and hurt himself too. Mm-hmm. But like, just like you said, when you are, when you're going hands on with someone in the unit, you don't, you feel bad about it, but sometimes it has to be done. Yeah. Uh. Well, <laughs> <laughs> is there anything else you want to say before we wrap up? Um, oh my God. There's like a bunch of things. No, I'm just really grateful, Christine, that you have this, this podcast. It's a great opportunity for everyone to get to know like what everyone does in the medical field. And I'm super appreciative that you, um, you let me be a part of the podcast and, you know, just as far as um, being a mental health advocate, you can just start by going on the NAMI website. Um, there's like local chapters seeing, seeing how you can educate yourself on being supportive to someone with mental health or any places where you can volunteer. Like that's a good place. Can you spell that out? N-A-M-I. <laughs> NAMI. N-A-M-I. Yes. Yeah. Uh, .org, right? Yes. .org. Okay. Great. <laughs> yeah. I love hearing everyone's stories. You know, it's funny because I was like panicking like a week ago, like, how am I going to get more guests? Like, how am I going to do this? And then like a bunch of people like have just reached out and I'm like, oh, okay, cool. A lot of other podcasts are like, oh, I got to, I got to get specific guests, but literally anyone that works in the healthcare field has a million stories. So it's, I have so many people that I can just talk to. Like any, anyone can be on the podcast and just <laughs> chat. So it's, it's great. I, I love it. So thank you for volunteering and, and talking to me about what you do. It's it's such an important thing and it's so underappreciated. So thank you for caring for patients and thank you for being so open about, you know, your own story. I think it's really important for everyone to hear that. Yeah. And then like if anyone like wants to reach out to me or has any questions about like my personal story with mental health or like what I do as a mental health nurse, I believe I am on the Antidotes podcast Facebook group. Okay. I believe it should be under my nickname, Abby, pretty sure. If not Abigail, you can find me. And yeah, I am more than happy to speak to y'all. I will tag you in the Facebook group, which is Antidotes podcast group. Good plug. (laughs) (laughs) People can ask you questions and we can have a broader discussion of mental health. And for anyone else, there's the Facebook page, of course, Antidotes Stories in Medicine, but the Facebook group is a little bit more fun. We have a little bit more conversations there. And of course, you can follow us on Instagram, Antidotes Podcast. Twitter is Antidotes Pod. My Twitter is Christine the NP, which I never use, but you can follow me there if you'd like to. Send me an email at antidotespodcast at gmail.com if you want, or just DM on one of the social media platforms. That's cool too. And please give us some reviews, help us get into the charts so more people can see the podcast, share the podcast, share podcast episodes. That'd be cool. That would be really nice of you. I'd appreciate it. I want to say thank you to Peter Hopkins for doing our intro music. Um, (laughs) Well, thank you guys for listening again for another week. Enjoy your week. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I will see you.